If you would, open up your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. We will read chapter 9 together in just a moment. Uh, my name is Ben Kreps. It's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at Living Hope Church, and what a joy it is to gather with all of you this Lord's Day. Well, let me introduce you to a true original, Simeon Stylites. If you aren't familiar with Mr. Stylites, he was a Syrian Christian born in the 4th century AD who gained renown for his life of rigorous, intense, and severe lifestyle. Uh, he was converted to Christ in his early teen years. He began to become very zealous for Christianity, and at age 16, he joined a monastery. But as one article comments, quote, from the first, he gave himself up to the practice of an austerity so extreme and to all appearance so extravagant that his brethren judged him to be unsuited to any form of community life. They asked Simeon to leave the monastery. Let me tell you, if you're kicked out of a fifth century monastery, there certainly is some issues. There are some issues. Upon being kicked out of the monastery, he then isolated himself, spending at times weeks without eating or drinking, and eventually he removed himself famously to living on a platform that was several feet in diameter on top of a stone pillar that was several stories tall. He was wildly popular as crowds of pilgrims traveled to hear him teach from on top of the pillar. And in fact, he inspired several generations of imitators. They were also called stylites who lived on top of stone pillars. Simeon Stylites, in his zeal to pursue faithfulness to God, concluded that depriving himself of almost every comfort in doing so, he was pursuing meaningful Christian spirituality. And throughout the history of the church, there have been many, even to this present day, who, while certainly less extreme than that, feel and teach that real, authentic spirituality is found through rigorous, severe lifestyles of deprivation. Now, to be sure, we are called to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Jesus. We are called by Christ to recenter our reason for existence, our purpose in life from one centered on me and my desires to one consumed with the purpose of Jesus Christ and his glory. But in that place of humility and submission to Christ, we remember and we rejoice in that in this world we are surrounded by good gifts from our generous God. And in fact, a biblical perspective on healthy spiritual life is one in which we recognize that the world is given to us to be enjoyed to the glory of God. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, 
urges us in just that way to pursue life in this world under the sun with enjoyment to the glory of God. So let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Let us pay careful attention to Ecclesiastes 9, for this is the word of God. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten." Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. A simple idea in this text that we will examine is this. You are going to die, so make the most of your unpredictable life. And that's the two points. The first one is you're going to die. Verses 1 through 6. Last week we saw in chapter 8 as he has said throughout Ecclesiastes, that while pursuing wisdom is a good thing, in the end, life can be very confusing, and the greatest wisdom we have can't make sense of it. And in this reality of authority, in light of the political authority that each of us live under, and far greater God's sovereign authority over our lives, 
any control over our lives that we feel we may have is quite limited. All of this, he says, verse 9-1, all of this I laid to heart. And as he has already observed, there appears to be a senseless nature to the way that the world often works. He says the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in God's hands. He recognizes that God is the one who decides how all of this goes. But apart from divine revelation, which he is not laying out here, simply observing this life under the sun, one cannot tell if God's activity proceeds from his love or his displeasure in us. In the end, one can't tell because in the end, it is the same for all. The same event happens to everyone, to the righteous and the wicked and the good and the evil, to the ritually clean or the unclean, those who sacrifice to God or not. The one who has integrity when he or she makes a promise or complete liar. It's all the same in the end. Verse 3. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. That is some dark stuff. Right? Is he just simply being cynical? Now he's, he's being brutally realistic as he observes the world around us. No matter how successful or wealthy or good-looking or deceptive or poor or evil or decrepit, everyone dies. That's just the way it works. He says, verse 4, a living dog is better than a dead lion. He says, people that are alive at least have some hope. Here, when he talks about a living dog, he's not talking about your precious fur baby named Snowball. In that culture, a dog was a despised animal. So here he's even saying that while living and there's some hope, the living still have a wretched lot in life for in the end they die too. This all may sound somewhat familiar if you've been following along in this series as he has been explaining throughout this book we are most wise when we live with our end in view, not seeking to escape the reality of death or avoid thinking about it or distracting ourselves from it as if then it will not happen or we can prolong our lives. I will say to my young teenage friends listening to, my, listening to me right now, you might think you will live forever, but you won't. And if these honest and accurate reflections from the preacher as he observes the world around him were all there was to say, we would be left in anxiety and despair and hopelessness. And so while I could suspend this point of the sermon to the end of the sermon, I just can't resist. I'm moving it up here. As we often do with Ecclesiastes, we must pull back and put this book in the larger context of redemptive history. For listen, we know what the preacher did not yet know as he was relying on his powers of observations in the observable world under the sun. For praise be to God that, Matthew 4, 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. 
For Jesus Christ has come to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He came to deliver us from death in and through his substitutionary death on the cross for sinners like you and me as he atoned for our sin and removed ultimately the death sentence that stood over us in our sin, rising from the dead, defeating death itself, so that whoever puts their faith in him will not perish but have everlasting life, even though we will die. As Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, that's what's observed here, yet shall he live. So this text is not for us one of utter fatalism or nihilism. This is a text that comes to those who have put their faith in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Those who now know because of his work on the cross and his resurrection, even though we die, yet we shall live. And so this kind of text actually liberates us to be realistic and clear-headed in the face of death. We will die. We know, though, in Christ it is not the end. In fact, death is a doorway into glory. And by faith, we rest in him in a world full of death, knowing that he who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him give us all things? In other words, unlike the preacher's conclusion, as he reflects only that which is observed through human intellect, when he says, who knows if God is treating us with love or hate as we face the suffering and the death and the perplexity of this world, we are those who have received great and precious promises. Whatever appearances, whatever our suffering, in a prison, when the cancer hits, the financial hit devastates us, we know what the writer, the preacher of Ecclesiastes long to look into, that the cross is the unshakable evidence of the love of God. Now I'll invite the worship team to come forward. No, just kidding. You sort of could end there, though. That's good stuff, right? But the reality is, he goes on, we are not yet in glory. We have not yet come into what we will. And so the second point, this is longer, he says, so make the most of your unpredictable life, verses 7 through 11. Having observed the confusion of a world that doesn't seem to make sense at face value, especially no matter how good you are or how religious you are, everyone's going to die. He exhorts us to consider our lives under the sun and how we live now in light of the end. And here, whereas before he commended to us the sorts of things he describes in 7 and following, here he actually exhorts us. He urges us. Verse 7, he says, go, take action. He says, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. In other words, when you take joy in the food and the drink that God has given you, remember that he has actually given it to you for your enjoyment. 
Psalm 104 says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. He talks about that oil. He says, furthermore, clothe yourselves in white garments. And because I want to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer, I have worn these shoes. And put oil on your head, describing this ancient culture in the Middle East where one's face would be dried out, having been baked and scorched from the desert sun, and oil would refresh. He says, put oil on your head, refresh your face, put on your festive clothing. Furthermore, enjoy life with the wife that you love. For your life is short. Vain here means passing. Enjoy your toil. Enjoy your work. Whatever is in front of you, do it with all your might. In other words, you have one shot. And you aren't taking any of it with you into the grave. Theologians refer to this as one of a number of carpe diem texts. You familiar with that term? Carpe diem, seize the day. It literally means pluck the day as it is ripe. Verses 11 and 12, he reminds us that time is short. Nothing is promised. The fast and the strong and the wise, while they often succeed, we know many notable exceptions even to that sort of thing. While on vacation, our family watched a good bit of the Olympics. We were rooting for Katie Ledecky and Simone Biles and excited to watch Simone Biles compete, the greatest gymnast of all time. Who would have predicted that she would miss out at the Olympics? The race does not always go to the fast or the battle to the strong. Well, some of us may make it to a ripe old age and death will not be much of a surprise and maybe you're thinking, well, I'm there, I'm a ripe old age. What he gets at here is we often predict, we cannot predict when we will die. Verse 12, man does not know his time. The trap snaps shut and death falls upon us. When I was growing up, I had a to put it nicely, a rocky relationship with my parents. God saved me at 27, and one of the things he did in my heart was to move me towards reconciliation with my dad. And over the next few years, we began to grow in our relationship with one another as apologies were offered, forgiveness was extended. I remember looking for ways to spend time Uh, With my dad, we started brewing beer, which wasn't very good. But I remember going to the Lemoyne brewery or the uh, brewing supply store and smelling hops and grains and working on it with my dad as we slowly sort of limp towards each other in relationship. When I was 36... I got a uh, phone call from 
my stepmother, she was alarmed. My dad had left, run an errand. He had not returned in hours and uh, had not had any communication. And so as we began to think where we might search for him and what might happen, the police supplied the answer. My dad was at Tractor Supply where he had run his errand on the side of the building with the car running and he had died of a heart attack. And we didn't even know he had heart problems. He didn't. A man does not know his time. And so, in light of all of this, the brief, unpredictable nature of our lives, here he exhorts us, he calls us to receive and glorify God for the simple joys that God has given us in this life. David Gibson, in his fine book on Ecclesiastes, says, life is not about the meaning that you can create for your own life or the meaning that you can find in the universe by all your work and ambitions. You do not find meaning in life simply by finding a partner or having kids or being rich. You find meaning when you realize that God has given you life in his world and any one of those things as a gift to enjoy. So here is an exhortation for us to live in the moment. A needed exhortation for some of us can struggle with seeming to think mostly or only of our desire for what's next. My kids will often, as they have throughout their childhood, tell me they can't wait for their birthday. They wish their birthday was now. And my response over the years was, don't wish your life away. This is an invitation to receive each day as a gift from God to enjoy, to take joy in simple pleasures. Each day is full of gifts from God to enjoy if we cultivate an awareness. As we consider how generous God is to us, even to the food that he gives us to eat. He says here, enjoy your bread. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. I know there are a number of people here that love wine that are rejoicing in the application of this text. As you drink wine and inform us that it tastes of pomegranate and leather and Goodyear tires. It's a... But here it is commended is a drink to savor and gladden the heart. I mean, just take a moment to consider the food that we have been given to eat. That's right. I mean, even, even how it's developed, it's been, it talks about Scripture about man cultivating the earth. Just consider apples. <laughs> like that, Alan? They're... There was a time not too long ago when you went to the store and you basically, at the grocery store, you could buy red apples or green apples, or if you're really fancy, Granny Smith. Those red delicious apples? Mm -mm. Now you go to the store, they have Honeycrisp and Pink Lady, Fuji, Gala. I saw that there was a new kind of strawberry at the store yesterday. 
rosé strawberries. All the wine people are going, really? It's a... <laughs> yes. My favorite food, or one of them, definitely is fried chicken. And I know for many of us, we are saddened each Sunday when we have that moment where we think, you know what we'll have for lunch after church? Chick-fil-A. You ever do? I've done that so many times. There's good news. Popeye's makes a killer chicken sandwich. They are open on Sundays. One of the funny things about having little kids is they are on team dad. And so if I'm not into something, they're usually not either. And uh, we had some bad experiences with Kentucky Fried Chicken a little ways back, which I began to loudly in my home denounce KFC. (laughs) So much so that a recent commercial came on recently with KFC and unprovoked, my children began booing out loud. (laughs) It's a... Here's the deal. I've told them, I saw a commercial. They have a new sandwich that looks really good, so... I might renege on all of that. But now, there's certain foods, tofu is of the devil, but <laughs> so, but, but, but I mean, what I'm getting at is each day we can easily take for granted all of the simple, wonderful joys of the food that we eat at mealtime. Now, no, this is not a call to or an invitation to or uh, to gluttony. Listen, when, when one is overindulging in food, when one finds themselves enslaved to eating food, they find that food makes a terrible God. But it's a wonderful gift when it's placed in its right place as a means to magnify God and give glory to him. This is an invitation to savor each mouthful of each meal and each snack and each drink. In other words, the spiritual part of your lunchtime today is not just the prayer before the meal. When we receive our food to the glory of God. Certainly the early church knew this. We read in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost when the gospel is preached and 3,000 are saved and they immediately begin falling into this glorious community that we read in Acts 2 verses 42 through 47. Verse 46 says, describing the early church, day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This is also, note, I'll say because of this verse, this is not separate somehow from, hey, we're just in our homes eating our food, and what about the mission of Jesus? What about the advancement to the gospel? You read the verse right after 46, it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So in a world, in a world of New Testament Christianity, as saints, humble saints, gathered together, Hearing God's word, applying God's word, praying together, eating together, receiving food with glad and generous hearts. In that context, God adds those. We we have the opportunity, in other words, to invite others in to hospitality, to, to have them experience the joy we do because we understand that every good gift is from God as a context to share Christ with others. Furthermore, he says, enjoy your work. That might be challenging for some of us. 
but Colossians 3 helps us here. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This will transform even what appears to be the most menial labor. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. So whatever your work is in this week, whether mother to little kids, sheets employee, engineer, regardless, in all of this, we are exhorted, put your hand to the plow, work with all of your might for the glory of God. Furthermore, he says, enjoy your spouse. Enjoy the wife whom you love. Let me ask you if you're married. Think about recent days. Have you been enjoying your spouse? Have you been so busy, so consumed with the difficulties of life that it would be hard to pinpoint where enjoyment has happened? So if, if you have been overly busy, I'll, I'll put it this way. If you're too busy to enjoy your spouse, you're too busy. And if you find, as you consider the last season, that there has been a neglect in enjoyment of the one God has given you to love, that can be remedied immediately. I would encourage you, if that is the case, maybe if you have time, Set aside a weekend to get away to enjoy one another. If you don't have that time, after the kids go to bed, in-house date night. That's how we call it sometimes. Set aside the controversies and the debates and take time to enjoy one another. Let me add as well, certainly the preacher here would commend the enjoyment of our children. And kids, listen. I know a bunch of you are going back to children's ministry up to the nines and tens. I have you for a couple more weeks. So you, you, you are called by God to jump into this world of gratefulness and joy. And anyone who is a parent, it is our privilege to help our children find their joy in God. Here's an application for all of us. I think that would, would help us get at what we are called to here this week Take some time and make a list of the many gifts that God has blessed you with. You can make this list with your friends or a spouse or your kids as a means to express joyful gratitude to the giver of every good gift we've been given. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century prince of preachers, a story is told of him, quote, Reverend Theodore L. Kyler, the celebrated Brooklyn divine, was visiting the famous London preacher, Reverend Charles H. Spurgeon. After a hard day of work and serious discussion, these two mighty men of God went out into the country together for a holiday. They roamed the fields in high spirits like boys let loose from school, chatting and laughing and free from care. Dr. Kyler had just told a story at which Mr. Spurgeon laughed uproariously. Then suddenly, he turned to Dr. Kyler and exclaimed, Theodore, let's kneel down and thank God for laughter. And there in the green carpet of grass under the trees, two of the world's greatest men knelt and thanked the dear Lord for the bright and joyous gift of laughter. His gifts are everywhere. 
we are surrounded with opportunity to thank our dear Lord for his gifts. And so here is implicitly a call to receive each day consciously. Perhaps we get up in the morning fog-headed, immediately slammed with the concerns of that day. But here is an opportunity to transform our perspective, to, to awake each day, yes, with the difficulties, but cast our cares upon God and receive what God has for us in the day. Not just letting the day happen to us, but knowing that God is in it. And one more thing, better, we know what he did not know either, we remember that these gifts are actually foretastes of a glorious future that is ours in Christ. What is described as the wedding supper of the Lamb, as described in Revelation, where the saints gather clothed in white garments, gathered around the table of God, eating and drinking and rejoicing in the presence of God. David Gibson again says, the Bible's picture of the best that life can offer us is simply a foretaste of a wedding banquet still to come, the beauty and grandeur and glory of which cannot be put into words. Listen, for all who will put their faith in Christ. There is glory coming and every delicious bite or wonderful sip of drink or rejoicing in God's grace is simply a foretaste of the glory that is coming. David Gibson one more time says, those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. Listen, but those who love Christ Cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we will do after we die. The gifts are from the real country. They smell and taste and feel like home. This is a text we can apply immediately to our lives, not only following the service, even in this moment. Consider in this moment air conditioning, coffee, your spouse your kids, the friend who is seated near you. The Savior who is present with us. For as one commentator says, the true members of the people of God ought always to be in a festive, joyous mood inasmuch as they rise by faith above the gloomy present to the glorious future awaiting them. And so the preacher exhorts us, live before you die. Got one shot. Ring all the joy out of it that you can, not for your own personal glory, but only for the glory of God, knowing that all of this is only the distant echo of a far country that will soon come near in the day of Christ. Nothing less than a new heavens and new earth. Let me close with this. Thankfully, we do not need to live on top of a stone pillar to pursue biblical spirituality. And let me say, there's so much we said about all this, but certainly there is a time for fasting. But happily for us, there is feasting as well. Not for the means of sinful self-indulgence and self-gratification, but living this life aware of and enjoying 
the many good gifts given to us from our good and gracious God who has given all of this to us in this life under the sun. Remembering all of these are simply foretastes of the feast of heaven that is coming because of the grace of God as we live our lives for the glory of God. Amen.